Let's foray into Nevada's wild spaces. This is a half an hour adventure with the Nevada Department of Wildlife. This is Nevada Wild. Here on this Welcome to Nevada Wild, brought to you by the Nevada Department of Wildlife. I'm here with co-host Aaron Keller, and today we have our reptile expert, Jason Jones, down in Las Vegas. Jason, you were saying it's 117 degrees down there? Yeah, it's warm. It's been a really hot season so far, and, and very dry as well. Exactly. I can't imagine 117. I'm complaining about Reno, which is like, I think it is in the 100s though. So, but Uh, yeah, and that's right on topic with what we're talking about today. Um, We have been seeing, I sent you an article, I think it was today or earlier this week, just people, we keep getting questions from the media and the public asking if there's more rattlesnakes in neighborhoods because of this drought, or not even just rattlesnakes, but snakes in general. So could you clear up some of the confusion or really just answer this question? (laughs) How is the drought impacting reptiles? Yeah, so um, that's a really good question. And one that, um, you know, a lot of of people would love to know the answer to, myself included. Um, And I think to start it off, you know, one thing is that there's a lot of mythology surrounding snakes um, and they lend themselves to mythology, I think due to the fact that um, they're really hard to find in, in reality um, and they're cryptic or camouflage. So often you don't even see the snake. Um, they're behaviorally unique. People are creeped out by them, right? Um, and then they also aren't really a priority typically for funding opportunities. So, you know, the amount of time and effort we invest in understanding what they do, where they are, um, all those things based on their life history or ecology, um, it's just really not on par with a lot of the other species that we, that we manage. So oftentimes we're kind of behind the eight ball when it comes to truly understanding what's going on. But um, I will say, you know, here's a couple of anecdotes. Um, in the last month, we had two bio blitzes, um, which are citizen science based. And to just uh, give a def- definition for those who are listening, um, a BioBlitz is an event that is uh, focused on finding and identifying as many species as possible in a specific area for a short, defined period of time. And at these BioBlitzes, scientists, families, students, teachers, and other community members kind of work together um, to get a snapshot of, this, of an area's biodiversity. And so for two weekends, um, dozens and dozens of people uh, came out to two of our a national monument and national park. And despite our best efforts and, and just the sheer number of people, um, and we were targeting snakes, mind you, um, we saw, I think, two rattlesnakes. Um, and that was really shocking for a lot of us, especially the herpetologists in the crowds. Um, and I think one of the biggest reasons we all kind of came to is because it's really hot and dry out there. And and that kind of speaks to this exact you know news article that you gave me, which kind of indicated that you know, rattlesnakes are essentially moving into this urban landscape to try to find water. Um, and that's that's essentially inaccurate based on the actual science that's out there. And, and here's why. And so rattlesnakes are kind of considered to be low energy in terms of their physiology, um, meaning it doesn't take a lot for them to, to operate. And so they can hunker down, they can go months without eating. Um, they're ectothermic. 
meaning they rely on their environmental conditions, specifically temperatures, to regulate their body. I like to think of uh, like Goldilocks and the, the bears and the, the beds, right? So a rattlesnake is essentially looking for a place that's not too hot, not too cold, particularly during this active season, which is about April to October. And you know, if the environment isn't suitable, they're gonna hunker down and bide their time until it is suitable. And um, you know, this is, this is pretty common for a lot of species that are inhabiting our deserts. Um, they've obviously evolved to inhabit the desert. So um, to think that they're actually going to go forage and look for water is, is somewhat silly because um, you know, they're, they're, used to, they're used to dry conditions and much, much of the time they're actually uh, getting their, their water from rain. And so when that isn't happening, they are simply not going to move long distances, especially if it's too hot outside. Um, so that's like a risk. That's not only a risk for them uh, in terms of predation or just overheating, um, but it's also a risk because they're going to have to leave their home range. Um, so they're going somewhere where they don't even, they, they don't know what the consequences will be. Um, rattlesnakes are really interesting. They'll, they'll actually, when it's raining, they'll go out and um, they'll coil themselves up into essentially like a, a water dish. And they'll literally drink right off of their skin in this, in this dish that they have formed. Um, and so they're really, they're really, you know, hoping that it'll rain. Um, they're not going out so much and finding pools or like trying to find your kiddie pool and, and like seeking that as a source. Um, and so if, if water like in the desert isn't permanently like a historical feature, um, then, you know, they're going to wait and hunker down. And that is exactly what we see and a lot of studies have seen. Um, I think there was a study in Southern California with Mojave rattlesnakes and it illustrated in drought years, uh, they moved a third the distance that they would normally move in a regular year. So that really illustrates that, you know, these animals are really like hedging their bet and they're making sure that they're not um, investing a lot of energy to get like zero essentially on return. Um, another little uh, side note on Reptiles, uh, a colleague of mine uh, has been studying lizards since the 60s and, and found in some plots where they had marked individual lizards, and these are common lizards like the whiptail, that actually um, some females wouldn't even come out of holes. They would never see them on the landscape. So they thought during their study um, that these animals were dead, right? And these were in drought years. And it turns out in subsequent seasons when it was wet enough, these animals would come out. So um, these, these reptiles have this ability to do what's called estivate, which is essentially hang out in one location. It's kind of like hibernation during the summer and conserve both water and their energy because they're not getting either food or water. And another thing that kind of, I guess, to consider um, just on basic food, kind of food webs and ecosystems, you know, when you have a drought, you have a lot less primary production. Um, meaning you have a lot less growth from our vegetation communities. And um, that's because plants need water, right? So this lack of water for plants influences the primary consumer. Rattlesnakes and other snakes aren't eating, aren't, aren't vegetarians. Um, so they're not eating those producers. They're actually eating the primary consumers, which are critters that eat the plants like rodents and insects. So if you're a mouse and your prey base isn't producing, your plants, the seeds aren't producing, um, you will in turn have less food, um, which means that you will in turn probably not reproduce 
there'll be fewer numbers of you. Um, and that means there's fewer of you to be eaten by rattlesnakes. So for a rattlesnake to go out and look for prey in this particular situation, um, it would be, it, it wouldn't be a good investment, right? Exactly. Um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of silly to think that, you know, you would actually see snakes moving greater distances to find water when in fact, you know, due to the temperatures and, and just the drought, you know, they're going to hunker down in place. So yes, they're greatly impacted by the drought, but it almost sounds like it's the opposite of what we've been reading some places where, you know, we've been getting asked if you're going to see more in your neighborhood in a way we may be, it may be harder to find them. Yeah, I mean, for us, it really is. You know, this season has been really brutal when it comes to uh, searching for some of these species that that uh, we're studying. And, um, you know, a good example is like Gila monster. You know, Gila monsters really aren't moving much. We have way fewer observations this year than we have in past seasons. Um, and, and that's in spite of the fact that we have seen two to four times the number of people recreating on our landscape in the last year. So, you know, due to COVID, a lot of people weren't able to go to gyms, bars, school, wherever. All their social network places were essentially closed. And so, um, obviously, people increased in terms of their uh, recreation opportunities and went to places like Valley Fire, Red Rock, Lake Mead. Um, and so they went out to, to recreate. And I think, like, you know, biking companies know this the best because like there weren't even bikes available last year right so obviously people were increasing um their recreation opportunities in the outdoors which is great um, but that also means that they're going to be encountering things more right and especially people who aren't used to seeing rattlesnakes or just snakes in general are going to be shocked and it's going to be it's going to be kind of like the reality check that there are in fact snakes out there um, so i think not only with the number of people that are out there um, but also a good example is California with the wildfires. They're not only increasing in their magnitude and, and quantity, um, but that's causing things to be displaced as well. So you're decreasing habitat while increasing the number of people in those remaining habitat parcels. So, yeah, I mean, just simple math would state that you would see that people are going to say they've seen snakes more in general, um, when really I think it's an artifact of we're going out more, there's more people out there. So there's more people like tweeting, there's more people Instagramming about it, um, there's more people putting it on Facebook. Um, and, and I also kind of struggle with the idea of like fear mongering, snakes are feared, mm -hmm. right? So um, obviously companies that remove snakes are, are going to profit off of fear mongering. And I'm not saying that's what they're doing, but um, you know, for people who go out and remove snakes, um, it might be kind of this uh, confirmation bias, you know, if, if a landowner, is like, man, snakes are out there more, they're gonna be looking for snakes more, right? And so that's kind of this, this confirmation bias where you have, you know, you interpret new evidence based on your own set of beliefs. Um, and so that's, that's kind of, I think, where we're at. We have this like huge number of people. I think in the last decade, we've seen a th uh, threefold increase in the number of people at Red Rock, let's say. Um, and then in the last year, that almost doubled. So you just have a, a ton of people out on the landscape and a ton of phones taking photos. And I think it really kind of distorts the reality of the situation, which, which is, you know, this isn't a great year for snakes, to be honest. 
Lots of good information. I'm actually going to take a break right there. We love having you on. You're just, I barely have to say anything. (laughs) No, it's great, but we still have a lot more to get through. So we will be right back after this quick break. You're listening to Nevada Wild. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on hunting, fishing, boating, and all things wildlife, go to endow.org. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Nevada Wild. Today we're joined by our reptile expert. We are always bringing him on here to talk about reptiles, Jason Jones. And as I was saying during the break, you're our Mythbuster, really. Every time we have you on here, you're uh, mythbusting, really. We so, just call, we just ask him a bunch of questions and see yeah. if we can stop them. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So we were talking about some of the common calls you get because there is a lot of misconceptions around snakes. Um, so you were saying a big one is why do I have a rattlesnake in my yard or? I love wildlife, but not snakes. <laughs> right. so, yeah, you know, often we, we get calls, especially here in, in Vegas, we get calls from people who live along what I refer to as urban wildlife interface, right? They live on the fringe of town. And sometimes like it's, it's like in the heart of town. Um, that's more rare. But, you know, for those folks who do live like on that edge of town, butts up to forest or desert, um, you know, they, they sometimes are there for a reason. It's because they, they love that landscape. They love wildlife. Um, and they are likely feeding the wildlife, generally birds, right, through some sort of bird feeder. And unfortunately, if you've, if you've ever watched a bird feed, you know, on grains, seed, or suet, um, you'll notice that they're pretty sloppy and a lot of that seed falls to the ground. And, and since they aren't very tidy when it comes to eating, um, that grain that's on the ground does in fact attract a lot of granivores like mice and rats and things that you probably would consider a pest. And, and those things obviously are, you know, trying not to be seen. So, um, and they're likely hiding out in slash piles or wood piles or, you know, that miscellaneous pile of things you have in your yard. Um, and as they continue to kind of forage and make these trails, um, if a snake were to happen by, it's going to pick up on that. And then it might actually change its, its course due to the fact that it picks up on this, this mouse scent. So, you know, often you're kind of indirectly encouraging wildlife like snakes to enter your yard because you're, you're trying to attract something else. And so just kind of considering like, you know, are you feeding birds and what, what's happening with that seed? Um, is your yard you know, cinder block and impossible for a snake to penetrate or do you have chain link or whatever? Um, these are things you should probably ask yourself, especially if you are worried about snakes. But that said, you know, with, with the exception of rattlesnakes, I often encourage people to not try to rid their yard of snakes. Like in Vegas, we have uh, a ground snake, which is a common, common occupant of backyards. And those are a small fossorial, meaning they live underground snake that eats like termites and bugs. Um, you know, you have gopher snakes across the state that, that generally end up in people's yards. 
And those things eat mice. They may even eat a rattlesnake. You know, if you had a king snake in your yard, that definitely is going to eat a rattlesnake. Um, so oftentimes, a snake in your yard might actually be the exact pest control you're looking for, um, given that you're not paying for it, and it's providing you some sort of, you know, service in terms of like ridding your yard of potential pests that might cause disease, plague, whatever, um, or just you know mess up your house. That's a very good point. Now I almost want a snake in my yard. <laughs> I would I would freak out if I saw one. I'm sorry. I wouldn't encourage people to go catch snakes. Yeah, <laughs> but if one ends up in your yard, it's not necessarily a bad thing. No, you know, they don't they don't want to mess with you, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, even even rattlesnakes, the last thing they want to do is is mess with you. They they can not only see you, um, but with those pits. Um, above their mouth, they can actually heat sense you. So they know you're huge and scary. And the last thing they want to do is mess with you. You're not a food item. Um, you're a threat, if anything. And mm -hmm. always keep in mind, you know, the venom that rattlesnakes have um, is, is something that they're using as a tool to subdue prey. So while it's really good to, you know, kind of ward off any potential predator they might face, um, if they use it, they, they have to make it so it might take them, you know, weeks or, or whatever to make enough to subdue prey. So, you know, it, it comes at a cost if they're going to strike with you. Exactly. Definitely good points for people to know. Um, and so you were saying, I mean, this year, people may not actually see as many in a way. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what we're experiencing. And a lot of wildlife professionals I've talked to are experiencing the same thing. You're just not seeing you know, we have animals that have transmitters um, on them and we're not seeing them move as much. Uh, for instance, we, we've, we have a Gila monster study and we have a Gila monster that actually has been essentially hanging out in its overwintering shelter for the entire season. And now we're into July and, you know, typically prime time Gila monster season is like April and May because um, it's cool. The temperatures are just right. And they've, they've just woken up and they, they need to forage and then they're finding mates. And so for an animal to forego that whole season and wait until July, it really speaks to how, you know, we've, we've hit record temperatures in June and this drought is considered this mega drought and we're just not getting the rain. So, you know, that animal is really foregoing not only these foraging opportunities, but also the potential to find a mate. Um, and if it's a, you know, if you're a, a female reptile, um, you know, having actually mating and having offspring in a drought year would come at a huge cost because if you're not getting the water you need um, and all these animals, you know, while we sweat, mammals sweat, um, reptiles also do some sort of like evaporative cooling. So they also lose water uh, when it's too hot and that's a means of cooling their body down. So, you know, they, they do need some sort of water subsidy in a sense, especially Gila monsters. And so if you're not getting that, you're not getting the food you need, um, you're going to forego reproduction. You're probably like this other monster, you're going to forego moving. Um, and that, that all is at a cost of the population, you know? Yeah. And while we're on that topic, that's actually why I asked that question. So I wanted to segue that Gila monster situation is very interesting to me. Um, while we're on that topic, you, in the first half of the show, you were saying how we've only had a quarter, I want to say, 
of what we had last year as far as Gila monster sightings. Um, I think one of them just came in on Facebook the other day. So thank you. I should find their name um, for who sent that. But do you want to get any messaging out there to people just how important it is to be letting us know if you do spot Gila monsters? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, we have a wildlife action plan, which kind of guides, essentially guides what, what we do in terms of the species we work on, the habitats that we're, that we're interested in surveying and, and knowing a little more about. And Gila monsters happens to be a pretty high priority in our state. And so we're always asking people if they see a Gila monster to send us an email. We have an email reptiles at endow.org. Um, that's an easy one to remember, or you can send it to me directly, or you can just send it to us on Facebook, however, however you get it to us. We'd love to know where and when you've seen it. And, you know, we're working currently on a project to kind of better understand how related Gila monster populations are. So that gives us an understanding of like how intact their habitats are, um, how much they can move, um, you know, like how, what kind of quality those habitats might be. Um, so all that information, you know, that you provide us also gives us an opportunity to potentially go out and catch that animal and, and learn a little more about it. And obviously we release them and we leave them un, unharmed. But um, that information for me is like gold. And like I said earlier, you know, sometimes we get six to maybe 10 Gila monster observations a year, which is really small when you really think about it. If you're in Arizona, that'd be a very different number. But um, that's, that's a pretty consistent number for the last, I don't know, six or seven years. And this year, I think we're up to two, thanks to the last Facebook post. Yeah, um, Harry George, that was his yeah. name. <laughs> so yeah. thank you for doing that, sending that our way. Yeah, you, you doubled our observations this year. Um, but that really speaks to like, you know, again, if there's twice as many people out there recreating and we're seeing, you know, three to four hour waits on Lake Mead and, you know, all these places. And obviously recreation is increasing right now. You would expect to have way more observations of some of these harder to find species. So I think it really does speak to the fact that, you know, this drought and these temperatures are, are changing the way wildlife is responding to their habitats. Exactly. And as you said, more people are out recreating and while some of these species are responding by, they're not moving a lot, so people might not see them, but still, since people are out and about, there's always that possibility. Is there any tips or anything you wanna to give to people who are outside um, hiking? Yeah, uh, so like you'd mentioned, Ashley, earlier that we have a kind of summer bio blitz going. It's kind of at your own pace. Uh, you can log on and to iNaturalist and make your own account if you don't have one already. And iNaturalist is kind of a cool forum to take photos of, and honestly, anything from like the plant that you encountered on a hike to the creepy spider that's dangling above your coffee table um, to like a Gila monster or another you know, lizard or bird species. And so not only is it a good opportunity for you to ID species, people, people on there are experts and they'll help you identify what you're seeing. But it's also a great way for us to kind of track where certain species are, um, which kind of improve our management of those species. Um, so one, I would say like, try to take photos of things, obviously a safe distance. If it's a bear, it gotta be a ways back. <laughs> I'm not a bear expert, so I'm not gonna weigh in on that. But, um, you know, if it's a rattlesnake, rattlesnakes can't strike 
they, they strike no more than half their body length. So if you're a good, you know, if it's a four foot rattlesnake or, you know, if it's a four foot rattlesnake, someone's going to tell me it's an eight foot rattlesnake. So if, if you think it's an eight foot rattlesnake, give it eight feet. Um, <laughs> but, you know, take a photo. Generally, depending on where it is, we can ID it to species. And, you know, do that first and then just be cautious of, of where you're hiking and um, always look where you put your hands and your feet, especially if you're nervous of snakes. Um, they hunker down, they find places that are cool and shaded. Many rattles, all rattlesnakes in our state are ambush predators. And so they're going to be waiting for that mouse to walk by. And so if you, if you happen to walk by, you know, it may just stay there and not even, not even rattle because that's its first line of defense is be cryptic, stay hidden. Um, yeah, so I definitely suggest that people take photos. It's a great way for us to get more information. And we could use them right now. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, well, thank you, Jason. It's always great to have you on your hole of information. Aaron and I, Aaron, have you said anything? <laughs> we barely have really. to talk. I've been just <laughs> nodding my head. Like, it's <laughs> awesome to just listen. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you, Jason. And thank you everyone for listening. Send your pictures Jason's way if you get any reptile pictures when you're out there. That does it for this week's Nevada Wild. again next week for our next adventure, Nevada Wild. It's a production of the Nevada Department of Wildlife. <laughs> <laughs>